uh, get on Air Force One and, and sort of make a surprise yep. trip. Well, the invite is certainly there for Prime Minister Netanyahu, so we will see. Yep. And uh, have a great show. We'll be watching for the next hour. Thanks, Connell. Great show. Yep, we'll catch you tomorrow. All right. Hello and welcome to The Hill. As you know, it has been 10 days since war broke out between Israel and Hamas. And here in Washington, it's been almost two weeks since there's been a Speaker of the House. Tonight, among the questions, will President Biden, as we were just discussing, be heading to Israel? And will Republicans be able to figure out who their leader might be? We'll dive into both coming up. Plus, former President Donald Trump out on the campaign trail. You are looking live right now at the former president in Iowa. But he was also told today by a judge what he can and cannot say. The Hill on News Nation starts right now. All right, here we go on a Monday afternoon. Thanks for being with us here on The Hill. I'm Blake Berman, joined today by Max Rose, a former Democratic congressman from New York. Julia Manchester, of course, the national political reporter for The Hill. Ford O'Connell is a GOP strategist and a former surrogate of the Trump White House. Mike Vicara is News Nation's Washington bureau chief. And joining us remotely, hanging out for a little bit here, Mick Mulvaney, News Nation political and economic contributor and the former White House chief of staff to President Trump. Hello, Mick. Hello to you all. We will, of course, get to the big story abroad, uh, Israel, uh, in, in moments. The big story here in D.C., the speaker's race as well. But first, we begin with a gag order and maybe what you could call a political gag gift. The judge overseeing Donald Trump's election interference case has ordered that he cannot attack witnesses, prosecutors, and court staff. Now, a spokesperson for Trump released a statement this afternoon which calls the move a, quote, absolute abomination, saying it is President Biden's way of, quote, muzzling him. And then there's this. President Biden's campaign has officially joined Trump's social media platform, Truth Social. You see it there, the profile bio saying, quote, just the facts, Jack, a project of Biden-Harris 2024. Clearly a little bit of trolling there. Uh, Mick, we'll start with you out there. Uh, take either one of those up. I guess let's start with, with the gag order and, and what it means for Donald Trump and, and how you expect him to respond. Yeah, you know, and again, I'm, I'm critical of the president when I think he deserves it. I support him when I think he deserves it. I think he's being mistreated here. I'm not sure what the justification is. I know what the ostensible justification is. But this man is the leading contender for the Republican Party for the presidency of the United States. And they're putting a gag order on him and saying what he can and can't talk about. I'm not sure that that's going to hold up. And to your point, this is a political gift. I mean, to the extent Trump is going to be running, trying, I guess, at some point to appease, to appeal to independent voters about the weaponization of government, this is going to be exhibits one, two, and three, in addition to the other 40 exhibits he already has. So... I get it. I, I suppose I understand how this might, might apply in an ordinary circumstance. This is not an ordinary circumstance. And my guess is it only helps Trump in the long run. You were shaking your head, Ford. I absolutely agree with Mick. It does help Trump in the long run. It particularly helps him in the Republican primary. I, look, there's a big plank that Donald Trump was making about two tiers system of justice in America right now. And this is very, very helpful for him because a lot of people question what the rule of law is. And then you have this judge, Chutkin, 
who's an Obama appointee, who's made some incendiary comments herself on and off the bench about Donald Trump. And then you have Jack Smith, who's ruined Bob McDonald's life and, and several others. And he seems to be a part of partisan political hack on the bench. And the former congressman from New York, the Democrat, would say. So let's just rewrite the criminal code to say that if you are a leading presidential contender, we now will allow you to threaten witnesses, threaten judges, break all of the rules. Whatever happened to the America we all love where no one is above the law? This is absurd. Now, is it a political gift? Of course. Of course. The guy's certain to be the nominee. But you can't do what he's doing without a response. When when did that become contentious? This entire case is a political persecution. I'm going to tell you that right now. You've got to look at the 91 charges and 700 years he has facing against him. It is absolutely overcharged and insane. And American people are saying that there are two... Two standards. And essentially, you talk about no one being above the law. Well, Donald Trump is being treated below the law. So, uh, Vic and Julia, I mentioned the the political gag gift. (laughs) Truth Social and the Biden team getting on. There's actually a a question. There's there's actually a question right now. You see it? There's actually a question right now about whether the Biden campaign is actually on it or off. And we're going to speak to the deputy uh, campaign manager. But what do you make of it, at least going on it? Yeah, look, I think it's brilliant that they went on it. And I think the rollout was really brilliant. They gave it to Fox News, the exclusive. And, you know, the Biden campaign has said, look, we're meeting voters where they are. So they're going into Trump territory on Truth Social. You saw in that screenshot there, maybe a little trolling there with the dark Brandon and the malarkey ends here. But at the same time, I don't know how big of an impact this has. Donald Trump has 87 million followers on X. He has 6 million followers on Truth Social. It's sort of an old school move because the the conventional wisdom up until recently was that you don't turn your back on legions of voters, 76 million voters. So this is perceived as a little trip behind enemy lines for for the Biden campaign. But still, I mean, you can't just write off an entire portion of the electorate, almost half the electorate. It's also trolling, though. Yeah, well, and right, some, like at its core, so they get to is. show how much moxie they have by taking <laughs> on the on the Trump campaign. Well, the, the other yeah. thing though is, is everyone was bad mouthing Truth Social. I'll tell you right now, Devin Nunes has got to be thrilled that Joe Biden's on there. I mean, Truth Social is you know gumming up in the way. Former uh, congressman is running the thing. All right, turning now to, of course, the war between Israel and Hamas as the cri- as the uh, crisis deepens in Gaza. It's also changing the conversation on the presidential campaign trail. GOP hopefuls striving to be the next commander in chief on the Republican side divided on the response, especially when it comes to handling Palestinian refugees from Gaza. Watch. Those Gaza refugees, Palestinian Arabs, should go to Arab countries. The U.S. should not be absorbing um, any of those. We should care about the Palestinian citizens, especially the innocent ones, because they didn't ask for this. Mick, bring it back to you. Who's right here between Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley on the Republican side? This is a really tough one. It, it really is. I think I come down with Nikki on this one. I mean, the tradition in this country of being open to refugees is is long and storied. It's part of our culture. It's part of what makes us Americans. I get what Governor DeSantis is saying. Um, and, you know, I, I'm not interested in letting in folks who are anti-Semitic. But if there are innocent victims overseas, we have always been a place for those folks to go. So it's a tough call. Finally, you might get some some um, some texture to the Republican uh, primary race because there's finally something they might disagree on. So uh, maybe it's good, it's helpful for the debate. But I think Nikki might come down on the uh, the right side here. Yeah, look, the politics of the Muslim ban are rearing its roaring head right now. And in the process, the Republican Party is actually returning to its isolationist, xenophobic 
roots. You know, it, it, going all the way back to previous to World War One. You know, everyone thought that it was just Donald Trump, this lone man filled with hate that was talking about the Muslim ban. When the truth of the matter is, is that this type of xenophobic hatred is what is fueling so much. Well, but of you're the saying Republican this is in the Republican base. Party for decades, though. I, oh, I, uh, oh, a where was the xenophobia? What, what are you talking no, about? There, there are this the isolationism and xenophobia has been a figure or a pillar of part of the Republican Party for the better part of the century. Of the century. Wait, wait, now, which wait, is a major for Democrat. With that being said, that does not characterize many of my Republican friends. I love Mick the whole nine, okay? But Ron <laughs> DeSantis... I don't know about you, but Ron, <laughs> Ron DeSantis does not come out saying this without looking at poll numbers. <laughs> when he says they should go to Arab no. countries, Let that insinuates that we are not When it comes to refugees, it comes to safe countries. Nobody in the Middle East wants to take in Palestinian refugees, okay? And given how well Biden is basically vetted at the border, are you kidding me? You can, Ron DeSantis is absolutely right in this instance about being pragmatic about what's going on. And when it comes to Democrats, it is Democrats, by and large, a near majority, who support Palestine over Israel. Mick? Mac, while you're there. Well, I mean, to Max, I would say, Max, you know, Nikki Haley's a pretty prominent Republican, and she just took the other side of it. I mean, this is going to be an issue you're in totally the Republican right. Party. I mean, you're at least totally we have a right. chance to, to have the debate. So I, know, I think it's unfair to, to get to cast the entire I, Republican Party as being no, isolationist. No, I'm not. I'm just characterizing a part just of did. the Republican Party. <laughs> just, uh, just a part of it. Just a, just a large part. Yeah, and if I can jump in here for a second. You know, this is all happening. We talk about hatred and xenophobia. This is all happening at a time when Jewish Americans and Palestinian Americans feel very much under threat, under a lot of anxiety. Over the weekend, there was a six-year-old Palestinian American boy who was stabbed to, that, to death in Chicago. It goes on both sides of this issue. So I think that's worth pointing out as we hear a lot of the political rhetoric on this heat up on both sides of the issue. All right. Well, as an Israeli uh, invasion of Gaza potentially looms, the situation uh, inside there becoming more dire. Food, water, medical supplies running low. The next steps in the fight against Hamas remain uncertain. Joining us now from Tel Aviv, once again, our man on the ground, Robert Sherman, who has the very latest live in Israel. Robert, good evening. Hey, good evening to you as well, Blake. And it's definitely been one of those days in which it feels as though we have witnessed the fog of war firsthand. You talk about the humanitarian crisis that's over in Gaza. Well, it looked as though there were moments in which we'd get a bit of reprieve from that. There were talks about a ceasefire taking place there that the Egyptians were discussing. But Hamas and Israel said there was no such deal in place. There were talks about the Rafah crossing opening up to get uh, foreign uh, nationals out of the Gaza Strip and humanitarian aid in. No such thing happened today. So this is what we've been very closely monitoring here. But if things don't change, it appears as though we're on a serious collision course for a human catastrophe to potentially take place in the Gaza Strip as Israel continues to gear up. The people in Gaza really have nowhere to go. There's no safety valve here. These next couple of hours and days could be quite pivotal in what exactly happens here, Blake. Robert, what can you tell us uh, about the hostages? Uh, we, you know... Uh, more than 30 Americans believed to be dead, but there's also be, uh, believed to be Americans among the hostages inside Gaza as well. 
Right. And the latest count that we have from the IDF, they put it at 199 total hostages that they believe are being held by Hamas at this point. Uh, and you've seen some interesting dialogues here. For days on end, the IDF has said that they would be prepared to restore humanitarian aid to the Gaza Strip if the hostages are returned. But now you have senior officials with Iran saying, well, Hamas is prepared to give the hostages back if the bombings start. So you see these two different narratives here, these two different dialogues, and there doesn't seem to be much coalescing here, but the hostages are definitely a big conversation point right now. Robert Sherman, live for us on the ground in Tel Aviv once again. Robert, thank you. Well, over to President Biden now, as his campaign has gotten a much-needed bump thanks to some strong fundraising numbers. In coordination with the Democratic National Committee, the, uh, the campaign reports that it raised some $71 million in the last three months. Just as important, the campaign has nearly 91 million bucks cash on hand, giving it a key advantage, potentially, for the general election. It also spent some $57 million during the last three-month period as well. All of this comes as President Biden's uh, re-election effort is facing some major headwinds. Joining us now is Quentin Folks. He is the uh, campaign's principal deputy campaign manager and making his first appearance here on the Hill, I believe. Quentin, thank you for the time. I appreciate it. Uh, those are some pretty big numbers, of course. But here's one of the things that caught my attention. Um, in Q2, so April, May, June, the campaign spent a million bucks. You went 50x that the last three months. Why would you feel the need to spend well, I mean, first of all, thank you for having me on the show, Blake. It's great to be with you. Uh, but look, campaigns, this is what we're for. Uh, we're here to, to communicate with voters. Uh, and so, yeah, while the spend went up, I think the important thing to look at is that we have $91 million cash on hand, uh, which is a significant cash on hand advantage. Uh, it's more than all GOP candidates combined. Uh, and we did that while launching a 16-week buy to spend $25 million on television targeted at African-American, Hispanic voters, core-based Biden-Harris coalition voters. Uh, and so, yeah, while the burn rate went up, uh, we're very pleased uh, with how we landed the quarter. All right. So, you know, uh, $57 million, I think, was the number spent uh, over the last quarter. Obviously, you've raised a ton. But when we look at polling, Quentin, you're looking at the same stuff that I am. It shows right now essentially a coin flip between Donald Trump, potentially, and President Biden. How come you haven't been able to pull away? Well, look, first of all, we are over a year out from the election and polls this early just aren't, uh, you know, indicative of what's to come. Uh, if you look back at historical trends, uh, incumbent presidents that are in similar pre in similar situations as President Biden have been in similar situations. Uh, but look, people uh, are motivated to go out and vote. And what we've seen thus far is overperformance by Democrats in elections. And also, again, going back to the fundraising numbers, but that, everyday but Americans, that number is nurses, not a warning teachers, for you opening their wallets to give to us. But, no, but, look, but that because, number's I mean, not look, a warning for you. I mean, look, you know, we talk about Donald Trump and I, we hear from, you know, 91 felony counts, so on and so forth. But I mean, he's he's Americans are saying they like him as much as they like President Biden. Look, our campaign is here to communicate to everyday Americans, and that's what we're focused on doing. We're going to use the resources that we were just able to get uh, in Q3 to do that. And again, these polls are just snapshot in time. So much is going to change. There's going to okay. be a ton of polls that come out over the next year and a half. And what we're focused on is delivering our message. So let me ask you uh, going forward, because, I, you know, we're just presuming, of course, Quentin, that that these, you know, at least for this conversation, that these will be the two down the home stretch. But there's also RFK Jr., uh, and Cornell West, who do you guys view as as potentially 
the bigger threat to the president's reelection campaign, the bigger threat being in terms of pulling votes away that you need? Look, this is going to be a close election, no matter uh, how many candidates are on the board or who we're running against. Uh, our campaign does not, you know, subscribe to the notion uh, that it's going to be Donald Trump. We're building a campaign and an infrastructure that's going to be able to compete against anyone. Uh, but look, this campaign is going to be close, as I said. And what we focused on is what we can control, and that's communicating to American voters. And so, again, we're spending the resources that we've been able to raise uh, to make sure that we're communicating our message and doing it in sophisticated ways uh, that haven't been done before. And we're very proud of that. So, again, Hold it's on, something you, that we're monitoring and paying attention to. But, you know, we're focused on delivering our message. You don't you don't think it's it's going to be Donald Trump or just at this point, you're not willing to say it's going to be him? We are focused on building a campaign that is going to be able to be competitive regardless of who the Republican nominee is. We can't control that. But what we can control is the message that we're putting out about President Biden and Vice President Harris. Quentin, uh, the campaign went up on Truth Social today. Why'd you do that? What's the thinking there? Well, look, uh, we we said all along that we're, we're focused on meeting voters where they are. Uh, there are a number of Republican voters on Truth Social, uh, but it's something that we can have fun with. And look, at the end of the day, whether Republican candidates uh, or elected officials realize that they're doing it or not, okay. oftentimes they're the best surrogates for our message. Uh, and so we're, we're having fun gonna, with that uh, and making sure that we take advantage when they do that. You're going to stay on it? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Um, all right, we'll leave it there. Quentin Folk, uh, Quentin Falks. Deputy campaign manager. And as you heard there, they're going to stay on Truth Social. Come on back on the Hill. Uh, You're always welcome back, Quentin. Thank you. Thank you, Blake. Uh, Mick, let's start with you out there uh, in outer space joining us remotely. Smart (laughs) strategy there to stay on, to get on Truth Social. I mean, like, does that does that translate into votes or is this is it trolling? Really good interview, by the way. I mean, that's the folks running the Thanks. Biden campaign, and they, they, they sound like they know what they're doing. Um, yeah, why not? What's the harm? They're not going to lose a single vote by going on Truth Social. Um, I, do I think they gain a vote? I don't think so either, but it, it can't hurt them. It sounds like they're doing what they're supposed to be doing at this particular point in time. And what you're seeing, Blake, is the power of the incumbency. They've been able to raise a bunch of money without having to spend any because he doesn't have a primary election, whereas Trump, DeSantis, Nikki Haley, Tim Scott, everybody else is beating their brains out. We're hearing stories now. Well, that Mick, they, they did spend, you know, they did. Yeah, no, I hear you. But they did spend 57 million bucks. And I wonder after only spending a million in the quarter before. And I wonder if they did that uh, because there's the questions repeatedly about age and stamina and health. Sure. I mean, one of the things you want to do with money is use it to drive your message, right? This is how Barack Obama right. beat Mitt Romney a couple, a couple years back. You want to get ahead of the game. I get that. But keep in mind, summer's always a really, really slow time for political uh, advertising anyway. And it's still a long time until the general election. So, no, I look at those numbers as the, as the, as the opposition and say they're fairly well positioned. I still like where I am as a Republican in the polling data, but it looks like they're going to run a halfway decent campaign if this is an indication as to what the future holds. All right, Mick, thank you. Mick? Uh, I don't think any of these candidates, Donald Trump or President Biden, are going to have any trouble raising money from here on out. I mean, what we saw in 2020 uh, was the fact that both sides, both voters, both bases are incredibly motivated. Uh, And I think the numbers, 24.5 million uh, President Trump raised in the the third quarter, 
uh, point to the fact that this is going to be a very expensive race and a very competitive race. But I think what's key here is the $57 million that he spent. Blake is absolutely on target with a number that matters here. And the reason why is that Joe Biden is underwater on every major issue that's going to decide the 2024 presidential election. He's minus 44 points on the border, minus 40 points on inflation. I mean, he's in a real situation. And not only that, the Democrats are not that excited. You hit the other key point, Blake, and that is if Cornell West and RFK Jr. get on the ballots in those swing states, this could be a big problem for Joe Biden because essentially you've now given Democrat voters an out. Republicans more enthusiastic than Democrats when it comes to voting for Trump. Julie, I got to run, but I know you think the Cornell West thing's a big deal. Uh, I do, I do. Um, you know, in terms of he could take more votes away from Joe Biden in addition to RFK. I think RFK poses a threat to both parties. Cornell West, though, on right. top of that for Biden is an issue. You excited about your guy? Look, absolutely. Uh, absolutely. <laughs> oh, I, can, I, can, I can just sense the enthusiasm there, Max. <laughs> and to, to your point, we're going to have fun dancing for this next hour. The United States of America has rejected Donald Trump over and over and over again. And never in the history of modern American politics have we seen such a divergence between an extremist political base and where the majority of moderate swing voters are. And that's going to play out yet again when Donald Trump is rejected and Joe Biden's reelected. We got to leave. I got to leave it there. But I would mm. say mm. Uh, over and over again, he has one, one and one, one win, one loss. Right. So. I mean, we'll see what happens. Well, if let's a just, third let's just ignore all those midterm elections. Well, where he was resounding. Well, he wasn't. All, he, you know, that's that's well, the other side of the his, argument. His, but, his platform all right, looking ahead uh, to Friday on the Hill. By the way, my exclusive conversations with a couple other presidential hopefuls: Ron DeSantis, Asa Hutchinson. It's all part of a 2024 presidential forum in South Carolina. That's on Friday, five o'clock Eastern. You will hear those conversations right here on News Nation. Mick, you're sticking around because we're talking about the search for the House Speaker coming up next. A vote scheduled to take place tomorrow. Congressman Jim Jordan on the ballot, but does he have enough votes? What Mick is hearing, the very latest, as The Hill on News Nation returns. All right, welcome back. So the GOP nominee, Jim Jordan, is taking his fight to become the next Speaker of the House to the chamber floor with a vote now scheduled for tomorrow at noon. Going into the weekend, Jordan did not have enough support to win the speakership. But tonight, he's starting to pick up, starting to flip uh, a key number of holdouts. Still unclear, though, if he has enough votes to win. Johanna Mosca is a News Nation contributor and former Obama administration official. She is with us uh, for, uh, for this part of the conversation. She had some news, by the way, fascinating. I'll get to that in a second. Uh, but Mick, let's start with you here first. What are you hearing as it relates to, to your old colleagues? Jim Jordan, do you think he is the next Speaker of the House? Yeah, on you know Friday, I think we talked about this, Blake, and the answer was maybe 20%, two chances in 10. I think he's up 50-50 or at least maybe 60-10 oh, wow. uh, right now wow. um, because he's able to pick up a couple of folks that I never thought he would get. The names don't make any difference. Who are they? They are folks who are appropriators, which means they'd like to spend money, and they're defense <laughs> hawks. Now, ordinarily, defense <laughs> hawks are not necessarily misaligned with the conservative wing of the party. But in this particular circumstance, they're going to want certain assurances regarding Ukraine funding. And that is something that could fracture the Republican Party. So he's yeah. getting the support. I think the obvious question is, is he promising anything to these folks in order for that support? And if so, does that cost him support with another group? So you're back sort of playing the whack-a-mole. If you add three, yeah. do you lose two someplace else? But he's made progress in the last 48 hours. All right. All right. Uh, so we, we go into the weekend. It's Friday night. It's like 930. And I get a text from Johanna. And I'm like, huh, what's this about? And I open up the phone and she's like, you're never going to believe this. 
I'm on the plane to California, and Hakeem Jeffries is on my flight, and I'm chatting it up with him. Uh, Johanna, <laughs> what did the, uh, the top Democrat in the House tell you heading into the weekend? Yeah, it was it was great, Blake, because we had the whole of the California, the Los Angeles contingent of the delegation, too. So I had walked right up to them because, you know, Mick, we've been talking about this, but Hakeem Jeffries wrote in the Washington Post that he's ready for a bipartisan government and he'll support it. So I asked him, what does that mean? Because, of course, he has 212 of the 217 needed votes. And he said they're ready to support a Republican. Not him. He's saying we'll support a Republican that just wants to govern. To your point, Mick, you know, he wants Ukraine funding. He wants funding for Israel. He wants continuing resolution. He wants to get the government functional. And he said that they are absolutely willing to give Democrats their support. I chatted a little bit more about with Adam Schiff and everybody. Can't we throw out some Republican names that we would want to see? And they were saying the problem is that that may put Republicans in a precarious situation because they don't necessarily want the Democrats supporting them. And that's really the problem with politics, right, is that they know they want a functional government and the Republicans haven't come to them and they're not even able to say who they want because that would put the Republicans in a bad spot. How, how realistic is it what Johanna just laid out, Mick? Um, the key would be this, at what price? Sure, Hakeem would bring 212 votes. So would I, if I were in his shoes, if I got a chance to be the kingmaker. But what's the price? What do I get for it? And what I'm hearing, Johanna, is they want equal representation on the Rules Committee, equal representation on other committees. They want the ability to bring certain specific pieces of legislation to the floor, guaranteed. That's a really, really high price to pay. As you know, Max knows the chances of a coalition government in the House are, listen, it's not zero because we're in strange times. But it would be highly unusual that you did a Democrat supporting a Republican without a really high price to pay. Well, Mick's reading is spot on. This is uh, Democrats are playing politics here, and, and I love them for it. Um, this is a Republican-held House, and the House of Representatives is a parliamentary system. Now, what is fascinating here, and generally I think it's astounding, is the way in which Jim Jordan has steamrolled his own caucus. Hmm. And I mean, we went from 50 <laughs> on Friday down to less than 10 today. Holdouts, you mean? Yeah, yeah holdouts. To holdouts to, to include many people that are representing swing districts, Biden districts. God knows what the hell he's been saying to them, <laughs> those conversations that he had with them over the weekend. But that type of turn is remarkable. Yeah, okay, so they're going to have a vote on the floor tomorrow. Assuming he doesn't win, they're going to know who the enemies are and who, who the enemies within their own party, the people who are holding out. You put maximum pressure on those. Some of those people, Mike Rogers from Alabama, chairman of the Armed Services Committee, yeah. they're going to be primary. You know, this, no, I mean, you know, right, and he flipped. So is it any oh. wonder? Ann Wagner from, from Missouri as well, more, more of a swing district. I, wa I want to end here. Yeah. Um, you think he, it's Jim Jordan, yes or no? Yes. You think so, Julia? Yes. Mick, yes? Yeah, I know you said 60-40. Yes, but it might not be on the first ballot. He might have to shame some people yeah. first. Yeah. Johanna, so, you think that's where it ends? I, I hope that they actually come to a bipartisan solution, and I think it's okay. possible. <laughs> One last note. It'd be a Adam, great story. Schiff, Adam Schiff sat in the middle seat in coach for our six-hour <laughs> flight back, and he earned my respect for that because he has 1K right. status. He could have sat anywhere. Bye. He earned my respect. Thanks, thanks my for sources, taking that. My sources tell me they're bringing Mick back. Okay. Yeah, yeah, no, I don't think yes. Mulvaney wants any part of it. <laughs> Mick, we got to say goodbye here. Thank you. Johanna, thank you for taking that flight and joining us. Uh, bye to you both. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you.
All right, well, coming up, as Israel prepares for a ground offense in, offensive in Gaza, just how large might the conflict grow? How some of America's rivals are trying to use the conflict to change up the global balance of power and what a former defense secretary thinks about all of it. We're speaking to one on the other side of the break. Welcome back to The Hill as Israel prepares a ground offensive in Gaza. A warning tonight from both Iran and Russia about the potential of a wider conflict. Former Defense Secretary Mark Esper is also the author of the New York Times bestselling memoir, A Sacred Oath, and he joins us live. Mr. Secretary, thank you for being here on The Hill on News Nation. Appreciate the time. So Russia and China uh, harden their rhetoric over the weekend. Iran, of course, has a warning as well. As, as you sit back and sort of survey the landscape right now, uh, where do you see it uh, at where everything is right now as this war is playing out? Well, I think on the, uh, the, the grander geopolitical stage, clearly um, you have a contest of wills emerging now between the United States and our Western allies versus Iran and Russia and that kind of axis of authoritarians, if, if you will. And uh, clearly the immediate task for Israel is dealing with the situation in Gaza. And the challenge, of course, and they have multiple, is the prospect of urban warfare. Uh, What will Hamas do with the uh, hostages once they begin their incursion? Uh, Would it create possibly Hezbollah opening up a second front in uh, southern Lebanon, northern Israel? Uh, Might Iran uh, stir up passions in the West Bank and get that? And then, you know, Iran was had their foreign minister was going around this weekend to many of these capitals and then said publicly that uh, I- Iran would consider taking action if um, if uh, Israel moved into uh, Gaza. So, look, there is a, a, a lot going on, a lot of threatening, if you will, and it's going to be a matter of, of seeing who blinks first. But I don't think Israel needs multiple fronts here. That is a reason, uh-huh. of course, why we deployed a carrier strike group to the uh, eastern Mediterranean. Yeah, and there's this reporting now from the Wall Street Journal that uh, 2,000 troops have been essentially been selected for a possible uh, deployment to Israel for purposes of advising and and medical support. If you were still uh, running the Pentagon and the commander in chief asked you, sir, for your recommendation on that, would you tell him that's a good idea? I think it makes sense to uh, move the the carrier strike group into the eastern Mediterranean. I'd probably move one into the Indian Ocean in case uh, Iran started to get frisky over there. Uh, I don't know the purpose of 2,000 Marines. Uh, Obviously, it's another show of force. It adds more capability because you can put ground troops ashore quickly. But I don't see a role for U.S. ground troops at this point. You might see the use of special operations forces to assist with the rescue of American hostages in Gaza. But I don't see a, a ground role at this point in time. But it's look, what you, that, what you, want to, you always want to give the president options and putting the Marines there does give the president more options. What would and, and, and you would know as well as anyone, what would that look like if it relate as it relates to the potential of U.S. special forces on the ground uh, going in, trying to save hostages? Well, we do know we have some now assisting, training, uh, advising. I mean, the Israelis have very capable special operations forces. But you could see the United States doing some planning alongside them. And maybe if the Israelis were going in to rescue um, uh, Jews who have been taken hostage alongside Americans, you might see American uh, special operators accompany them uh, because those are our people. And uh, we have an interest in making sure that we get them out safe. So you could see some type of use of or employment of soft in that manner. Um, I got to run, but real quick, uh, the current commander in chief, 
What's he done right? What's he done wrong in the first nine days now as you see it? I think he's made strong statements with regard to moral clarity. Uh, I think he's, and his support for Israel, I think he's been sending his uh, cabinet officers there has been very good. And the deployment of these forces and provision of munitions is fine. I do think we need to take a stronger stance on on Iran and make sure that we he recognizes the fact that um, uh, at the end of the day, you have to. This all goes back to Iran, and we're going to have to deal with Iran at some point in time. Otherwise, the problem of Hamas and Hezbollah and uh, and Shia militia groups in Iraq never goes away. Former Defense Secretary Mark Esper, thank you for your time, sir. Um, hope you come on back. Would, would love your. Uh... Love your experience and, uh, and insights at any point. Thank you. Um, I'll, I'll pose the question here, Max. Uh, what's the president done right? What's the president done wrong so far as, you've see, as you see it? Look, the, the support for Israel has been astounding, resolute, incredibly strong. And I must also say that uh, the movement by Secretary Blinken, as well as Secretary Austin, to work to stabilize the region and bring our allies along with it, has been incredible. Now, here, here's what I will say that was done wrong, and it's not just the United States of America, it's the, uh, Israel and all the rest, and everyone's admitted to this. It's, this is a failure of the intelligence community. Yet again, to, it's a failure of imagination to see that Hamas was not, this is not a lone wolf actor. This is over a thousand people moving across the border. And there's got to be a real reckoning with how we uh, gather intelligence and, and how we uh, defend ourselves and our allies. Are we expecting Vic, Julia, the president, to go there at any point? I wouldn't be surprised at all. There's a lot of speculation he was going today. We hadn't seen him most of the morning. Uh, He canceled a trip to Colorado to talk about green energy. Uh, I think the question that has to be answered eventually, and I think it's going to become louder and asked more often, is what is the end game for Israel? What is the end game if the United States were to assist, as we're talking about special operators in there to help rescue American hostages? They're talking about crushing Hamas. Could you ever be guaranteed that you wiped out the Hamas leadership once you invaded Gaza? So it's it's just a terrible situation. Uh, Obviously, Israel is justified in, in, in reacting forcefully. But even President Biden said last night on 60, 60 Minutes, it would be a big mistake for, the, for Israel to try to occupy Gaza. But how are you going to get rid of 300 miles of tunnels underneath right. Gaza? So there is going to be some occupation of Gaza by the IDF. I think the other concern here is, and this is the big concern, whether you're Republican or Democrat, is making sure that this doesn't open up into a two-front war. The worst thing that could happen is Hezbollah jumps in here. And I, he asked the question, what has he done right? Here's what he's done wrong. I think President Biden is still being naive on Iran. Right, right. And, you know, just to go back to the refugee issues and the, um, you know, millions of people trying to get out of Gaza at the moment, this puts incredible pressure on the IDF and the Biden administration, because right now the critics of Biden right now are saying you're support, you know, you supporting Israel and being so forceful is resulting in this massive humanitarian crisis. So he's going to have to answer more of those questions. All right. Well, coming up, they are popular weight loss drugs. Ozempic. Wagovi, should the government pay for them? There is a new lawsuit out in which someone in Washington state is saying, you know what? The state should be paying for this. So what happens next and what might that bill look like, especially if the federal government were to pay for it? We'll get into it coming up on the other side of the break. All right. So how about this question? Should governments be forced to cover the cost of the popular and expensive weight loss drug Ozempic and others like it? Well, one woman in Washington state is suing for just that, since the state recognizes obesity as a disability. 
Now, currently, federal law prohibits Medicare from paying for weight loss drugs, but a study from the New England Journal of Medicine predicts that if just 10% of obese Medicare beneficiaries receive the drug, it would cost the government $27 billion a year. You ready to open up Medicare for this, Rose? <laughs> oh, man, no comment. No Look, comment? Is, so that- In the end, here's what I will say about this drug and the salient point that this person is making, which is that obesity is one of, if not the greatest public health crises that we are facing in this nation. We have far too many overweight Americans. And as we're considering things like this, there is a risk-based calculus here that there's a continued so, cost to people you, staying as fat as they are. And so if the government <laughs> can address that... But, I mean, are we, are, are we giving up getting people to take responsibility for their own oh, diets? No, is, that's no, no, 40% no, 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 no. obese, but let's, take, let's talk about Ozempic. Doesn't it not work? I mean, let's be honest. Well, well, no, no, it works. Okay, but let's just say you get one that works, okay? Here's the problem right now, and that is that they're going to see this as cosmetic rather than actually being chronic. And that's where lawmakers on Capitol Hill, they treat obesity as something that is chronic. You will see it used, you know, more with insurance. The problem is it's $1,000 a month. And, it's like, and that's going to start like, tagging. Like 15, 16 Max, of course, and has, wants to spend every dollar. Everybody on their Upper East Side is taking this right now. So we, you know, we, <laughs> yeah, we might... See, that's it, the thing. I mean, it's, a, it's become a fashionable it, thing. It, but what I will say is, is that in the long term, if people are not obese at the rates that they are right now, Here's you'll see aggregate get health care costs go down. Now, I know so here's, here's the, the argument, that, here's the argument that, Jeanette, that Jeanette Simonton is making, 57 years old. She told the New York Times, quote, they're being penny wise and pound foolish. What will they be paying in 10 to 15 years if I don't, if I don't continue to lose the weight, Julia? Yeah, look, I think there's a question of the who's who is the government paying for for this? Um, there's the question of cosmetics and there's this is definitely something that's in vogue right now. There are some people that are obese and genuinely do need it. But when does the government come in and start regulating who gets a Ozempic mm. or Wagovi? Yeah. Who does? I mean, it's a question. They already pretty much do that anyway with a lot of other drugs. And that's oh, that's really? that's yeah. going to be the question. Dietary means yeah, test. When does it actually become <laughs> FDA approved? We all agree what the widget is that helps bring down weight. Uh, you know, I think a more uh, fundamental question is why are Americans more overweight on average than anybody else in the world, basically? Right. By the way, right. Novo Nordisk, which is the company behind this, just reported earnings last week. They say sales growth up 38% in Q3, up 33% this year alone, and they are attributing that to sales of Ozempic and Wagovi in the United States. Always bet on big pharma. <laughs> that's the key. Meanwhile, Vivek Ramaswamy is standing up for the Harvard students who signed an anti-Israel letter following the Hamas attacks on Israel that have since ignited the war. The presidential hopeful took to X this weekend, calling the students fools, but also said that they should not be blacklisted. Uh, Ramaswamy will be joining Elizabeth Vargas reports coming up in about nine minutes from now. And joining us right now is Elizabeth. Uh, Elizabeth, uh, interesting that that you got him coming after, you know, these these comments that he made over the weekend. Yeah, both his alma maters, Harvard and Yale, are yeah. involved in this whole thing. I interviewed on Friday, as you may remember, a, a junior at Yale who started a petition that's now gotten 50,000 signatures, a lot more over the weekend, to fire a professor at Yale who blamed Israel for the attacks. A little bit different. You're talking about a faculty member versus students who, as uh, Vivek Ramaswamy told me at one point uh, when I talked to him before the interview, you know,
know, they're, they're just kids. You know, they shouldn't pay. They're idiots, but they shouldn't pay for this for the rest of their life. Uh, a lot of these CEOs, I'm telling you, are telling me. I interviewed one last week. Others I spoke to over the weekend. This is the easiest decision they've ever made uh, to not hire somebody who would say this. So, hey, and I just wanted to weigh in on your, your segment on yeah, Novo Nordisk. Um, you know that Novo, that Novo Nordisk is now the wealthiest company in all of Europe, surpassing yep. LVMH. Uh, it is really, the sales are astronomical. And the reason, uh, Vic, that half of Americans are obese is because we all go to McDonald's, myself included. Um, <laughs> you know, it's the processed food, but this is a real thing. This is a public health cost. Um, this isn't cosmetic for a lot of people. Maybe on the Upper it, East Side where Max Boot is, but yeah, uh, for the rest of the country, <laughs> it's actually a real health thing. It, it is. It is. It was a. It was a headline, Elizabeth. You're right. That came yeah. out. I don't know. Three, four weeks ago. Of LVMH has been surpassed. Has been as surpassed by Novo Nordisk in Europe. It right. just goes to show where things stand. More All right, than Elizabeth, Louis we'll Vuitton you. and Hermes. It's now. Yeah. Exactly. Ozempic. Exactly. All right. <laughs> we'll catch you in about uh, seven and a half minutes, Elizabeth. Okay. Thank Sounds you. Good. See you then. Uh, and as mentioned, Elizabeth Vargas, Vivek Ramaswamy, coming up here on News Nation. Uh, at uh, 6 o'clock Eastern for Elizabeth Vargas reports. But before then, he may be a comedian. He is a comedian, not maybe. Uh, Pete Davidson, though, did you see this? Delivered an emotional message over the weekend about the war in Israel, what he said, and why it was so important and personal to him. Next. You talk to Israelis on the ground here. They view the next few days as critical to the future of Israel's sovereignty. The whole entire country is in jeopardy right now. For continuing coverage of Israel at War, stay tuned to News Nation. So before we head out, did you see this over the weekend? Pete Davidson speaking about the war in Israel during his SNL monologue. And here's just part of what he had to say. I saw so many terrible pictures this week of children suffering, uh, Israeli children and Palestinian children. No one in this world deserves to suffer like that, you know, especially not kids. Perspective there, his father died in 9-11. And then there's this headline. Axios, Oprah pitched a White House run with Mitt Romney, according to a new book. Now, Senator Romney told author McKay Copens that Oprah wanted him to join her on a unity ticket for the 2020 presidential election. Axios received the excerpt uh, from her new book, Romney, A Reckoning. What do you, Oprah, <laughs> Oprah and Mitt. I mean, Pete Davidson ha has standing, right? He lost yeah. his father. Yeah. Um, and, you know, what's so funny about peace, love and understanding, right? I mean, why does it have to be polarizing, getting behind Israel or even standing up for innocent Palestinians? Oprah just sort of reinforcing the out-of-touch Hollywood perspective, like she was going to win a race for president. So a, a source apparently says, ah, she was never really serious about it. But, yeah, but know, Saturday Night Live hasn't been funny since Eddie Murphy left Saturday Night Live. Oh okay, God. so now i got to talk about this. You, you, <laughs> you, I, I don't have a problem with what Pete right. Davidson said. No, I think uh, what he said is great. I just okay. don't like Saturday Night Live anymore because okay. no, it's no longer fair. funny. Now, the point, though, is, is that Mitt can't even lie properly when it comes to Oprah. You know Oprah was never going to run, but she's a billionaire. She likes life. She likes to be liked. That's why you don't get into politics, because as soon as you get in there... Yeah, right. Half the population. There you go. How would that even work? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. It's, a, it's a headline nonetheless. Either way, thank you to everyone. Oh, Max, Julia, yeah. Ford, Vic. Uh, nice to have you all here. And thank Ooh, you all for here. watching.